<laughs> okay, I'm ready. Hello and welcome back to Intersectionally Speaking. My name is Suadi Motlale and today I'm with Sohela Sirajpal and we're going to be discussing the T word. I think I just made that up. Hi. Hi, Sohela. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm okay. The T word? I, I definitely made that up, didn't I? You did, but I think it's apt um, for a word that's so loaded. Maybe maybe this is the best way to frame it. Okay, cool. Let's go with it. The T word. <laughs> so today we're chatting about the T word, aka transformation. Uh, so Hela, you are a debater. So maybe let's start with a definition. Like what do we even mean when we talk <laughs> about <laughs> transformation? I think it can mean so many different things just to different people because everyone has kind of a different framework for liberation or what, what their ideal society would look like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I personally consider myself, you know, a communist, an abolitionist, a feminist. So to me, transformation has elements of all of those things, economic justice, ending imperialism and poverty, but also establishing community care and gender and sexuality and disability justice, as well as environmental justice. Yeah. But I think that a really unfortunate side effect of how loaded transformation is, is that it can be so easily diluted or co-opted to mean something less than maybe what it was initially supposed to. Yeah. And I would maybe point to like, uh, when I started university, which was 2016 first year. And this was, you know, the middle of fees must fall. We'd had roads must fall the year before. And then I was at the university of Pretoria. So we also had Afrikaans must fall. And, you know, this whole sort of, the transformation became such a buzzword among students, but also universities. And what, something that was initially pretty radical, I think, it was talking about accessing universities, fees that excluded the working class and poor and decolonizing a curriculum that was heavily Eurocentric or that centered yeah. whiteness very soon was, was sort of appropriated by the university to mean, you know, appointing a black deputy dean changing a few res names, including a few slides at the beginning of a labor law module about decolonizing labor law, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, and these aren't necessarily all bad things, but when, and yeah, some of them are very, very important, but when, you know, that black deputy dean is deploying private security and police against student protesters, or the residents with a pseudo name is excluding poor students, mm-hmm. um, then we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's really transformed? And, and I don't think much has in that scenario. So within university, but also just society in general, I think we've allowed transformation and social justice to become simply about representation within an unjust system and a minor reform of those unjust systems rather than meaningfully changing that system. Oh, wow. 
Okay, I did not see that coming right at the beginning. <laughs> but I think that's such an important framework and contextualization. Um, actually, a few weeks ago, oh, yeah, you tweeted, South Africa's entire economy is based on maintaining and exploiting poverty. And well, there's a whole thread, I'll add it to this episode. But your point there was that you know, the president isn't failing. A lot of people like speaking about how a certain leadership or a certain person in a, a certain position is failing, but instead he's doing exactly what he was meant to do, which is to, pro to protect profit over people, because that is exactly how capitalism is, I guess, structured. And you're mentioning very mm -hmm. important points here. Like if I'm appointed head of some inherently racist organization, even though I am black, I am queer, I am woman, I am young, there's very little that I can do as an individual mm -hmm. in that institution to change something that's inherently structural and institutionalized. And mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it becomes hard then to separate the individual from the institution and I think why this distinction or why the journey of trying to figure out what my power as an individual is, is because every day as a marginalized human being whose identity is located at the intersection of different structural barriers, I'm a victim of so much oppression. I'm a victim of so much mm. marginalization and transformation is about finding ways to create societies where I don't have to be excluded from certain spaces just because of my identity. And that requires mm. a lot of quote unquote activism, right? And yeah. I want to explore what our role in our individual capacities as either people who are extremely angry or just activists or who are revolted by the situation um, looks like. So how do we facilitate everyday transformation? What does everyday living in line with the ideals of someone who wants to see themselves better represented and included mm -hmm. look like? Um, I've been reading a lot on abolitionism and just the history of it and where it started and how we got to where we got. And a few weeks ago, I had a episode with Dumi Mulotto about that. And one of the most powerful things they said in that episode was that abolitionism at the end of the day also looks like accountability. And if I can't take accountability in my everyday life, then it's weird to just mm. aspire to this grand ending where the world is this accountable place, but I'm unable to do that in my everyday life. And I wonder if you have any reflections on what aspiring towards transformation looks like every single day? Mm -mm. I think for starters and something you've touched on, it it looks like something kind of exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I only recently rejoined Twitter after like, you know, years of not being online. And I'd always mm. considered myself reasonably socially aware, politically aware, but joining Twitter just has been exhausting, just being confronted constantly with suffering and cruelty and injustice. And so I think for a lot of us, there's this feeling like 
you know, what can I do as an individual? Yeah. How how can I realistically make a difference when so much is going wrong? Um, and so maybe I think like one of the most important things to, to realize as sort of like an everyday uh, practice is just how important, for lack of a better word, optimism is. So I recently... Mm. I watched a video a while ago and I wish I could remember the title, but it's, it's basically by this guy and his historian who has been doing a lot of writing, challenging mm. the, the sort of the misconception that we have that people are inherently bad and people have been bad for most of history. And that's just what human nature is. We hurt each other and, and we, we harm one another. We harm the planet, etc. And yeah. what he said was, as he was doing this research, he, he realized that that's actually not true. And that for the most part, people are good to one another and people help one another when they're given the opportunity to do so. Um, and he was explaining why this kind of research and this paradigm shift was important. And he just said that as someone on the left or as someone who believes in transformation, you, our entire sort of worldview is or our goal is premised on the idea that something better is possible, that people are capable of being good. Um, and if you abandon that, and if you allow yourself to sink into kind of pessimism about the world and about people, mm. then you're essentially conceding that, that there is no point to this entire thing that we're doing, right? Socialism and communism can't work. Abolition can't work if people are inherently bad. And so we have to actively challenge that quite widespread i think perception that that human nature is greedy is selfish is is cruel so i, I think hear like you sorry to interject mm -hmm. I, I i hear you and i think that's so that's interesting and it makes sense because there is so much negativity happening in the world as is but i honestly do feel like there are people whose entire mandate is to frustrate others especially mm -hmm. society men. I think they come on Twitter <laughs> just to make everybody upset because I refuse to believe there are people who actively think like that every single day. So mm. I, I hear that. I actually <laughs> hear it. But I'm also just like, really? Seriously? Mm, no, surely not. No, I definitely understand, which is why for me, like hearing him say that in that video and then trying to internalize it has been kind of a, a conscious struggle and challenge, but one that I, I still think is important. Mm. Um, even, even though there are many trolls on Twitter and in real life. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's take it to a practical, let's say, okay, at work, right? I, let's say I work for an, mm. a, a white society Afrikaans man, which I have done actually, it ended up being one of the best experiences of my life, but we're not there. Um, <laughs> and let's say this man is highly problematic, he's, he's racist, he's sexist, he's this and that. On the one mm. hand, as somebody who obviously advocates for transformation, I'm invested in trying to, I guess, call him out. But because of my lack of power in that specific situation and generally in life, 
I still need to be very conscious of the fact that, you know, I need this job. It's the job that's helping me put money. I mean, yeah, be able to put food on the table for myself or be able to take care of my family. And so Mm. sometimes it appears that it could be in my best interest to just not say anything, which is very counterproductive. Mm. So have you, have you thought about some of the ways to balance just calling out generally because of why it's important, but also just protecting yourself. And I mean, quite literally in like Mm. your socioeconomic circumstances, but also something you said a little bit earlier, which is that it's extremely exhausting. You can't wake up every day and be fighting some other system. You will literally burn out and Yeah, so I think the problem you've pointed out is very real. I think a lot of us also encounter that within our families, um, mm-hmm. whether it's it's your nuclear family or your extended family. There's always a few problematic aunts and uncles um, around. And, you know, I think it's very easy to say that you you always have a duty to, to call someone out and that if you don't, you're you're allowing these views to go unchallenged. Yeah. But I, I also think that, firstly, like you said, unfortunately, sometimes people have very real socioeconomic or safety considerations that they have to, to take into account, and you can't necessarily call out your, your bigoted boss. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, calling out is not the extent of activism, and it can sometimes feel like that, I think, in the age of social media where... You see people posting things like uh, not posting is a form of privilege or if you're not taught, why aren't you speaking about this specific thing? Um, And it can feel like you you have an obligation to call out injustice at every point that you meet it. And if you're not, then you're not doing anything. But in some instances, I think, such as in in a case where you work for someone problematic, I think that you can say there is nothing I can do in this particular situation. I can't change my boss's views single-handedly. And unfortunately, I, I need this job that could potentially be doing something very very good. Like you could be working in a public interest law firm, um, but you can still take your activism elsewhere. Yeah. Um, you can be doing community organizing separate from that. You can be hosting a podcast where you share information with people and, <laughs> and education. Um, you can be organizing fundraisers or do- donating when you can. And I think it's so important to understand that everyone has a different ability to help. And those are all valid and all important. Mm. I actually want to, just because I feel like I've mentioned it already, um, talk -hmm. about my own experience of working for uh, said cishet white Afrikaans male. So the year is 2016. I'm doing my final year. Yes, my age is exposed. And I've just applied to (laughs) constitutional court. Um, so how it works is that you just send in your application and then whichever judge likes you, shortlists you and invites you back for an interview. So 
Mm-hmm. I get shortlisted and invited for an interview by one judge. And that judge happens to be Justice Furneman. Justice Furneman mm-hmm. is an exceptional judge. He's a, he comes from Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape. Very Afrikaans, very white, very male, very cisset. So, <laughs> fine. Um, I'm nervous as Fuck, I get there and I, I'm feeling very betrayed by English. I don't know what I'm saying. The, at some point, the interview, according to me, is going so bad that he asked me what my favorite case is. And I say, S versus Makwanyan. <laughs> so so it's, it's that level of bad. And um, I literally just, it was during exam season. So I'd written an exam on the like on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday was the interview, right? Okay, so um, you're really going through a lot. At yeah, this point. but also there's so <laughs> many cases in my head, and that's the one I decide to pull out, really. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, and then right at the end, he gives me an opportunity to ask him a few questions. So at this point, mm. I feel like, well, I fucked up. It is what it is. This is your one shot to just have a chat with this man who works for literally the highest court in the country. So mm. I go for it. And I think literally almost verbatim, I say, so the constitutional court exists to correct injustices of the past, which mainly exist because of white men like yourself. How do you reconcile yourself <laughs> with a job that requires you to fix a problem that you're responsible for to begin with? So as it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, obviously I've been bewitched because what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I can't exactly remember what he said, but it was something along the lines of, and this is the first time a white human being actually speaks to me about the importance of being an ally and what allyship might mean or look like to them. And Mm. yeah, he just speaks about his experience as well, basically somebody who's benefited from white privilege, from being a man in South Africa, but also somebody who's invested in seeing a transform South Africa and how he just feels like exactly what you're saying. Like um, we all have different lanes. We all have different ways in which we can contribute and, this is one of the ways that he can do like he can literally not stop being a white man so to Mm. punish himself about it to indulge in i guess white guilt is not going to benefit anybody so the most he can do is some sort of i guess empathy but also um being an ally and he can he he's he's um i guess fortunate enough to have the opportunity to have a job that allows him to actively contribute to that and that's the ways in which you know his activism looks like and that completely changed my mind it blew my mind because well obviously not obviously okay for those who don't know (laughs) I got a call a few weeks later and I got the job that's how I ended up working at the constitutional court of South Africa Yes, I don't Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I don't know how that happened. But so that was the beginning of this very life-changing journey for me where literally every single morning I have this meeting with this man who's challenging my ideas about 
what I think transformation looks like, what I think activism looks like, what I think a change mm. looks like, because just before then, uh, you have alluded to this, but like we were in the midst of like fees must fall and all of that. And I just left this very, I guess, if I'm being honest, violent campus setting where calling out is the order of the day, where violent confrontations mm. are the order of the day, even though we have this beautiful and necessary mandate, you know, the nature in which it was happening, I didn't feel was always constructive. Sometimes it got very tiring and I didn't know how to, I guess, work towards transformation or how to be an activist in a way that wasn't loud in your face, confrontational, potentially violent. Mm. And that's what he did for me. You know, that's a space he held for me in, I guess, teaching me gentleness or, or some sort of patience or, I mean, some people could argue and say that I was watered down and whatever <laughs> else, but mm. that experience for me, um, I guess was so important because it's a very long fight. It's not going to happen overnight. And the most important resource mm. we all have is ourselves. And if we're not taking care of ourselves, then, yeah, then there's no point. Like, there's literally no point. Mm. Um, so firstly, I mean, I think that's that's brilliant. I definitely think it's 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 so important to consider different types of activism, whether mm. it's the type of calling out confrontational activism that you initially were a part of to a sort of more gentler understanding. But yeah, like you mentioned, it, it becomes really difficult, I think, at times to take care of yourself. And I I think a time I would maybe point to is the really recent protests about gender-based violence in South yeah. Africa. Um, and, you know, when they broke out, I think it was, it was last year, I was at university and these weren't things that I didn't know about. You know, we all knew what gender-based violence was yeah. in South Africa. Um, but to have these these protests erupt and to, to be a part of that, to be on campus during that, um, to be hearing these stories and sort of a non-stop uh, like deluge of information online and et cetera, it, it was a lot. And I remember speaking to some of my friends and being like, it feels like we are under attack in this moment, just by being a part of this kind of activism. Um, and so I think in that moment, what became important was community. So yeah. I know you, you phrased it as, as self care, but to me, it's about, it's more about community care. Yeah. Because as much as we are our, we personally are some of our, our, our greatest resources, we are also each other's greatest resources. And, you know, like there are very few things as comforting and as strong as being able to go to your, your friends, whether they are women, whether they are black, whether they are queer like you, or completely unlike you, whether they are white, they are cishet, they are yeah. men people who genuinely care about you and care about the same causes that you do and being able to say, I need, this is what I need, or this is what I am experiencing and being able to work through that together. I think to me, those have been the most valuable things to me. Um, 
but obviously, you know, things like rest, understanding your own needs, knowing when you need to step back. Um, those are all also very, very important. That's so important, actually. Um, and I definitely agree. What's what's your journey of, I mean, what you're at UP, that's literally yes, UP. Yeah. So what's been your journey <laughs> of finding your people, you know? Um, I think intersectionality in this transformation chat is also just so important. And how's that process of just finding safe spaces, creating safe spaces, what's that journey been like for you? Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I was at UP and as I'm sure you all know, the University of Pretoria is, is sort of a very Afrikaans uh, mm -hmm. traditional university. And I was in a, like a traditional res, which was called when I joined Mahriki. So <laughs> it was, it was quite intense. You know, we spent orientation running around singing Afrikaans songs with, with boys residences and like as a young queer woman from, from Durban, it's very strange, very much a culture shock for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, but even within those spaces, it was definitely possible to form community and probably one of the most like incredible experiences for me was in my second year when I was in sort of a, a res unit with a group of other women of color um, and who, who were for the most part like very similar to me in terms of our political ideals and just like wow what a what a powerful experience it was to just like live literally with people who believed the same things that I did and who supported me in that way and I think by the end of that year I think we all just felt more confident in what we were doing and more supported and I guess it's very cliche to say so but it's true more held almost mm. um yeah so I think and, and then that changed in my postgrad when most of my those friends had moved away um to to, to go on to work but I yeah. was doing a postgrad at the center for human rights in this year my classmates are all people who are generally much older than me um mm. who have already had careers um and who are from all over Africa um I think there nice. are only two of us from South Africa yeah yeah so it's very very different again but also just I think I opening myself up to that experience and to that possibility has been incredible just learning so much about what's happening around the continent and different perspectives um I think as South Africans we can be very sheltered um and very egotistical <laughs> Um, in that we think our issues are the only issues that, that are important. Yep. So I think that the moral of the story is just that community is everywhere, even in the places you would not necessarily expect to find it. Um, mm. There are always going to be people who can help you. Um, and so solidarity is, is just the most important thing. Yeah. But so, yeah, I want to talk about mm -hmm. the end goal. So going back to transformation, what does the end goal, if there's even an end goal, look like 
Um, we've admitted or acknowledged that the system is broken, the ways in which it is failing us and hurting us is not by accident, it's not a coincidence, it's literally meant to work the way in which it was working. We have an economy as a country that is depends on poverty continuing to exist and on ex- being able to exploit that poverty. Um, so economic justice is something that is integral to a transformed society for me. It's a society in which people do not hoard wealth, um, in which workers, the poor, everyone has an equal stake in society. Um, and it's a society that, that has, has managed to, to limit harm, to limit violence, to address the root causes of harm and violence. Um, and I think that would primarily happen through forging really strong communal links, having real democracy, which is when people have an active say in every aspect of their lives and of governance. Um, but, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's so difficult, I think, to envisage what the end goal is because yeah. we are, we've become so used to an unjust world Mm. Um, and it's sort of taken over our imagination, I think, so that we are incapable to some extent of imagining better, but really we should all want a world where, where people have what they need and people have the ability to be happy. Got it. Um, our beloved president at the state of the nation of dress <laughs> of the sixth parliament of South Africa Sometime in June last year said, and I quote, our economy is not growing, not enough jobs are being created. This is a concern that rises above all others. It affects the young man out of school, five years from now, who's still unemployed, the single mother whose grant supports not just herself, but her grandchildren too, the worker who, despite earning a salary, is struggling to make ends meet, the young student who must rely on a um, thin stipend from her parents to feed herself. And then he went on to speak about unemployment and how more young people need to be employed so that the economy can change and how he wants to support entrepreneurs. And I thought that's cute, but you're still this mogul (laughs) billionaire person who literally, Mm. I think you alluded to this again. I swear I'm going to include the link to the tweet. I'm just going to read the tweets actually. (laughs) But you alluded to this and in that thread you made, um about literally we be paying our miners the least um they're carrying Mm. our economy they are the ones who the mining industry is literally carrying this economy when alcohol was banned a while ago actually it's been banned a couple of times now the argument that comes up is that this wine industry is bringing in billions into the country and all of that. But when you think about where that wealth is going and who holds it, the young man who's sitting at home right now, who picks out the grapes on the farms all day, every day, is barely earning minimum wage, is barely earning enough to change his personal circumstances or that of his family. And he's the one Mm. at the end of the day that's plugging in the labor to that system and maintaining it. It's his labor that 
just carries that, right? And we're talking about how it's a billion rand industry, but this money is going to very specific people. And that has me thinking about how capitalism in and of itself, I, I can't support it when it's a system that's against me inherently. And when chats mm -hmm. like this come up in a lot of circles that I found myself in, it just always sounds like you're trying to aim for something very impractical, something that doesn't make sense. Like what does it even mm -hmm. mean? to not aspire to or to aspire to a South Africa where we, where we don't subscribe to capitalism. And then I find myself personally having these conflicting ideologies because I, I think inherently I can't support capitalism. Then I'm like, oh, it would be so great to have a G-Wagon so that I could drive from Cape to Cairo. Um, but a G-Wagon is literally 3 million rand and what does it mean to then be able to amass that kind of money for myself when there's so much inequality and so much injustice in our country. And I feel like I drive myself crazy with some of these thoughts. Um, there's an article by Mponda, but I'll add the link to this as well, where he speaks about black billionaires and how we try to glamorize self-made billionaires over people who have generational wealth because we feel like if you've made it as a black person against all odds that ought to be celebrated whereas if you're just benefiting from generational wealth it means at some point you're benefiting from slavery or apartheid or whatever the case may be and i don't think mm. there's a distinction i mean at the end of the day we all want to make it and if making it has been presented to us as having a lot of money um, what are your thoughts on what making it looks like, on what beating the system looks like? Right. So I think, you know, we definitely see it a lot amongst, a lot amongst people of color, this, this desire to, to make it, to become a billionaire, yeah. um, to, I guess, show the white man, um, but again, you know, what are we trying to do? Like, what are you trying to beat someone at their own game, mm -hmm. um, rather than 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 doing what brings you and your community value? Because look, sure, generational wealth—it's very easy to point at and be like, "That is unfair. That is unjust. Your wealth was was built on the backs of slaves." But I mean, how different is is modern wealth, right? Um, the Ramaphosas of the world that that sit on mining companies' boards, their wealth is built on the backs of poor black mine workers, and exactly. and I don't particularly see much of a difference there. Um, the fact to me, uh, and like I said, I am a communist, so you know this isn't a, a completely unbiased uh, answer. There's no <laughs> such thing as a as a a good billionaire i mean you're not necessarily a bad person but a system that allows someone to to accumulate that level of wealth and others to have nothing is yeah. an inherently unjust system and i think a lot of the time the reason we aspire to wealth is because we are scared because we 
we perhaps know what it is to not have much yeah. and we want security, right? You want to know that you will be okay financially, that you will be able to take care of your parents. You will be able to take care of your extended family and your children will be okay too. And I think that's really understandable, um, especially when you, you don't come from a background of generational wealth, but you know, there's a very big difference between security and uh, excessive wealth. But also when we talk about, about things like communism and socialism, the idea is that you wouldn't have to accumulate massive amounts of wealth to ensure that your parents and your, your children are taken care of yeah. because a community and a society would do that anyway. Um, Got it. And I, yeah, yeah. So I, I know it often can sound a bit unrealistic, but I changed my mind and became a communist literally just after reading one book, which I did to impress my crush. Um, <laughs> so it's possible. <laughs> we just need to engage in good faith with, with the knowledge that's there. I was literally about to ask you, what are you reading, right? But before I get into <laughs> that, my friends will literally murder me if I let you get away with just throwing the word communist in and not unpacking <laughs> that because we live in a capitalist country so mm. oh god i had i had i speaking of crushes i had this crush she was yeah yeah for capitalism and the babes didn't have like things that i consider basic necessities because she just felt like we can't be like supporting capitalism. And I'm I literally mm -hmm. like we sat on the floor and like it, it was a mess. <laughs> and I know that like, yeah, furniture is a luxury, but like if you can afford it and you don't want it because you don't want to support capitalism, I felt I found that very <laughs> overwhelming, right? So what does being a communist yeah. look like in a capitalist country? One, and then you can tell me what you're reading. Okay, so your your crush sounds like a very interesting person. <laughs> I don't know many other people who would identify like as being on the left who would maybe go that route. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to me, uh, obviously, uh, being a communist in in a capitalist state means you you can't necessarily live obviously the life that you would like to, and I think trying to individually divest from capitalism is not is not possible it's not a thing you can do as a single individual because the entire premise of communism and socialism is an entire system of people um like an entire country or community right yeah. just because you're not buying an iphone doesn't mean the the accumulation of wealth stops there is no I think the phrase is there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. So often people will want to boycott a specific brand because they have done bad things. Maybe they had a, released a racist advert or they used child workers in their factory. But yeah. so long as we live in a, in a capitalist society, you're going to find something wrong really with every single every single major company. And it's it's impossible to divest from every single one of them unless you want to live in a house in the middle of nowhere somewhere and live off the land. Yeah. In which case you're not you're not really contributing to some type of meaningful change, I don't think. Got it. But 
but the idea would be, I think, if you want to be a communist in a capitalist country, is that you should be actively working towards building a, a socialist movement within your country, within mm. the spaces you're in, whether it's supporting social movements in South Africa, which are often led by the poor, but can be given really valuable help by those of us who, who aren't necessarily poor um, yeah. or yeah, just just changes like that, I think, is how you contribute without uh, being a little unreasonable. Mm. Thank you so much for that. You've liberated me. I don't know if you heard <laughs> yourself in that moment when you said there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. You, my life changed. <laughs> um, I have individual battles with myself every day. Like, you're... I don't know if I'm supporting the right brands. I, don't. I mean, obviously, first and mm. foremost, I'm always buy black as far as you can. So if you can buy black, do it. Um, but also just realizing even if I'm buying from a black distributor, I don't know what the production process of that is. And I'm going to drive mm. myself crazy. Just like every small purchase can't be like a five hour long decision. Although I, I, I don't know. But anyway, when you say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, that freed so much weight off my shoulders because I was like, <laughs> uh, I guess it's the bigger picture and I can do my best every day. But like, I need to stop being so hard on myself. Like, it's not constructive if i'm spending five hours every day making small decisions like that when do i find time to make any meaningful contribution to the bigger picture oh my god mm. yes thank you <laughs> and then no problem <laughs> lastly um yeah what are you reading or maybe an interesting read you've picked up over the last couple of months that you want to impart, I don't know, wisdom, knowledge, <laughs> bars, you want to put us on? <laughs> uh, well, at the moment, I'm reading a lot about abolition because it's something I've, I've come to, you know, only, not, not recently per se, but something that I'm just becoming much more uh, involved in and interested in. And so... I think of, there, there's so much to choose from. Um, obviously, like the book that convert, that made me an abolitionist was Angela Davis's yep. Our Prisons Obsolete. Like, obsolete, sorry. I read that book and I was just like, that has answered all of the questions that I had. And Correct. I, I am now an abolitionist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess to anyone who, who is considering a change um, or has questions, that's... I would definitely recommend that book and then going that further. Me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was definitely me too. I recognize. I keep interrupting you. <laughs> You're not allowed to finish this list without telling me the book that made you a communist. Oh, again, really basic. It was literally just the Communist Manifesto. Oh Obviously, we've done lots of reading since then. Yeah. But that one was just like, ah, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think it helps that it's written not as a, you know an academic text or a really bulky book, but as an attempt literally to answer questions that, that people had at the time. Yeah. Love it. Okay, I haven't checked it out as yet. So You should. You should. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's those... 
I'll call them cornerstone books, like those very foundational books that everyone takes almost for granted. So like the base, you know, like um, I always say Mm. as somebody who grew up, I went to private school and just had very little exposure to black literature. So the first time I read Chimamanda Mm. was like my world changed. But obviously now as a 26-year-old, Chimamanda is so basic. And when I'm talking to somebody who's trying to make the switch from like mainstream literature to African lit, Mm. I may just like overlook her because I think that's so basic. But it's like, no, Mm. that was foundational for you. And so some of these foundational reads are actually so important. And I think it's important that like we keep putting them on, putting each other onto them. Um, I went through mm. a phase in varsity where everybody, like, if you hadn't read Fanon, you were literally not that person. And I mm. literally <laughs> only read Fanon after my degree because it was like hard. I was just like, I don't know what I'm reading. <laughs> and no, I completely understand. Everybody would quote him out of context and <laughs> just like the really radical things. And I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But now that I read him, I'm like, mm, guys, that's not what Fanon said, but okay. <laughs> Um, so I think the biggest thing is like reading I always say I don't argue with people who don't read I think the biggest thing Mm. is yeah reading for yourself and not getting like secondhand um, I guess information or whatever but also Mm. just creating your own journey that makes sense Um, yeah that makes sense to yourself so depending on where you are on your own journey of whatever it is you're trying to achieve um Mm. picking picking readings in line with that is important um i don't even know if i'm making sense at this point i feel like i'm just you definitely definitely (laughs) but i think something that's also important is like I think like a desperate need for South Africa specific literature on a lot of the issues that we're sort of interested in. So something like abolitionism, part of the reason I decided to, to do my dissertation on uh, prison abolition in Africa was that everything I was reading was American centric. It Mm. was just like American history and the current American context and that's important and valuable and still has lessons for us but it it's very very different from South Africa's sort of unique uh, context so I've been finding like following things like I'm sure you know Africa is a country and Mm. just like obviously local podcasts and stuff like that on these issues is just so important and valuable and often a lot more digestible than for none and and a lot of the more intense theory that yeah. that we were told to read mm. exactly i'm i'm reading uh the destruction of black civilization by chancellor williams i've been reading it for two months because it's one of those <laughs> um mm-hmm. but yeah it's my main read right now and I'd honestly, literally, I think I'm going to be one of those people like, have you read this book when I'm done with it? Because it <laughs> is that important for me on my journey. Mm. I'm a big Tandisa Mazwai fan. And if you go to any Tandisa concert, she's talking about Nubia and Aksum and 
the great ancient kingdoms of Ghana and all these places. And I'm always just like, go, what are you talking about? Like, where are those places? What does that mean? And this book Mm. literally unpacks the entire history. It's like 6,000 years of history from a black man's perspective. Of course, he was black American. So we need to take that into context. But it speaks to what you're saying about when you have a certain view from your own perspective. So history has been told from the perspective of the colonizer for so many years that when a black man tells it, it's literally like, I feel like I've discovered a secret. I'm like, nobody ever told Mm. me any of this. Nobody told me about like how Egypt came to be, for example. Nobody told me about why there was a need for like a million and one um, different kingdoms before we formed states and colonization mm. happened and, 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 and to have conversation, it's almost like having conversations in your own language because then it's like, Oh, cool. Got it. Uh, I hear that. And you're able to see yourself in that narrative. You're able to locate yourself and being able to have that sense of location, I guess, when we've been mm. so dispossessed in so many different ways, Um, as marginalized people all over um, the world, it's empowering. It just feels like you belong. It feels like you have Mm. a purpose. It feels like you're not a mistake. You're not a burden. You're not a fucking like nagger, if that even um, Mm. makes sense. So that's that. I'm not sure if this is dangerous territory. We should be ending the chat. Oh, wow. Actually, I'm not going to go into it. But... (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing yourself, for holding space, for starting this conversation. You know, I always say with these episodes, I think the last thing I'm trying to do is provide answers. You know, I had a friend listen to the prison abolition episode and get back to me and say, okay, cool, got it. So that didn't really give me answers. So what do I do now? (laughs) I'm like, child, go read, like go read, (laughs) you know? Um, So I think literally my intention with this entire series of conversations is to just start an important conversation that um, inspires some sort of action in the pursuit of better ways of living thank you thank you thank you thank you so much no thank you it's been it's been genuinely a pleasure to be here 